Welcome to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. Join us in person for worship each Sunday at 9.30 a.m. For more information about Covenant, including discipleship and mission opportunities, visit us at www.covenantpresjackson.org. This passage has a very different tone than the one that came before it, a darker tone. Twice, Jesus is grieved, first by a group of Pharisees and then by his own disciples. But the previous scene had the feel of a Christian conference. It was exciting and joyous. If you've never been to a Christian conference, know that they're very encouraging. Thousands of people from all over the country pack in a stadium to hear sermons and lectures and to worship together. One of the best parts about a conference, other than the books, is the enthusiasm of the crowd. It's fun to be a part of, to sing with thousands of people. But after spending a few days at a great conference, it can be hard to have to come back home and back to the mundane. A normal life and work are not nearly as exciting or encouraging. For three days, a great crowd of 4,000 Gentiles listened to Jesus teach. Some of them traveled from far away, and they stayed so long that their food supply began to run low. Out of compassion for the crowd, Jesus performed a great sign. He fed the crowd with just seven loaves of bread and a few small fish. And it wasn't meager portions handed out. Everyone was able to eat enough to be satisfied, and there were seven baskets full of leftovers. This was a radical, generous provision. The crowd had a feast with the Messiah. What an incredible end to a three-day conference with Jesus. And it could have gone on longer. The people didn't want to leave. We're told that Jesus sent the crowd away. And then he got in the boat with his disciples and headed back to Jewish territory where he encountered a very different audience, a hostile one. As soon as he got out of the boat, Jesus was confronted by a group of Pharisees. He was accosted. They came out to argue with him and to test him. They had no interest in learning from him. In fact, Jesus would have only wasted his breath if he tried to teach them because their minds were already made up and closed off to him. They had probably heard reports of his strange teaching and his tendency to break with tradition, and they were troubled by his ability to woo crowds with tricks. They couldn't believe that God was actually enabling Jesus to perform miracles. The reports must have been exaggerated, or the people healed were merely acting. Or perhaps the crowd was just easily tricked because they weren't as sophisticated or as educated as the Pharisees. Now, 
Whether Jesus had lost his mind or was a straight-up con artist, they couldn't be sure, but they knew that he was a false prophet. And so to catch him in his trickery, they demanded a sign from heaven to test him. But they clearly had no idea who they were talking to, as if Jesus, the Son of God, were under their authority. Their hubris blinded them from the truth. They wanted to see for themselves what had already been seen and witnessed by others. And they wanted it on their terms. They didn't just want any sign, but a sign from heaven, which has an apocalyptic tone to it. They wanted him to do something that would signal Israel's deliverance from her enemies and the full reestablishment of the kingdom of Israel. Now, such a sign would eventually come, but not in the way they would expect or value. The sign didn't come through military victory, but a humble death. They wanted the sign of the Messiah with his enemies as a footstool for his feet. But the sign Jesus came to give first was that of the suffering servant, lifted high upon a cross, pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. Jesus didn't give in to their insincere request, nor did he feel the need to defend himself against their accusations. But I wonder what his disciples thought. If I were one of them, I'd, I'd be thinking, oh man, you have no idea who you're talking to or what he can do. This is going to be awesome. I mean, I would have wanted Jesus to quiet them with an impressive display of power, to vindicate himself from their attacks, to show them that they're wrong and put them in their place. But Jesus isn't prideful like I am. He knew it would be a waste of time to argue with fools who wouldn't believe even if they saw a sign. After all, no sign is sufficient proof of God's will and approval. Deuteronomy chapter 13 gives the instruction that if a prophet or dreamer of dreams comes and gives a sign of wonder, and the sign of wonder comes to pass, but he then teaches something contrary to the Torah, then you are to put that prophet or dreamer to death. The signs don't matter if the teaching leads people astray from God. The Pharisees were already convinced that Jesus was a false prophet, leading people astray from God. And so no sign could change that. And besides, Jesus wants people to come to him in faith and trust and not by sight. Faith that depends on proof isn't faith at all. Jesus, seeing these religious leaders in front of him, the leaders of Israel, was exasperated. And he muttered a curse. The English translation why does this generation seek a sign? Is softer than what the Greek text suggests. He literally said, if a sign be given to this generation, then he doesn't finish that thought, but the rest is implied. It's the first part of an oath formula 
The second part being the threat. Like, if a sign be given to this generation, may God strike me down. In other words, not only will a sign not be given to them, but Jesus himself will prevent it. It's ironic that the Gentiles in the previous passage who are seemingly far off are actually closer to Jesus and therefore closer to God than the Jewish religious leaders. There being nothing more to say or do, Jesus got back in the boat. And this time we're told what happened on the boat ride. It's the third boat scene narrated by Mark. In the first, Jesus calmed the sea and rebuked his disciples for their lack of faith. In the second, the disciples were fearful as they saw Jesus walking on the water. Now, in this third boat scene, Jesus again attempts to teach his disciples a profound point about his own identity. But the disciples don't understand because they too, like the Pharisees, suffer from some amount of spiritual blindness. But there's a big difference between the spiritual blindness of the Pharisees on the shore and that of the disciples. The most important was that the disciples were in the boat with Jesus. They were faithful to him, even though they didn't understand him. What happens in the boat strikes me as a bit humorous. It turns out that the ministry of Jesus wasn't free from logistical errors. They had gotten back in the boat and set sail too quickly and then discovered that they had forgotten to pack enough bread. The disciples were externally sharing their disappointment about the lack of bread, while Jesus was internally contemplating his own disappointment not about the lack of bread, but his disappointment in the Pharisees' lack of faith. And with these things weighing heavily on his mind, Jesus wove them together saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. But the disciples didn't get it. They were still worried about physical bread, but Jesus wanted them to be concerned about what he was concerned about the corrupting influence of the Pharisees, the false teaching and hypocrisy of those who should know God's word the best. Just as the yeast and leaven causes the whole loaf to rise, the message of the Pharisees has the power to corrupt them entirely. But the disciples remain clueless to the spiritual point Jesus made. They're still thinking about literal bread. And so now exasperated by his own disciples, Jesus came at them with a barrage of questions. Why are you discussing bread? Are your hearts hardened? Can you not see or hear or understand? Do you not remember what you've witnessed? They had no idea of the danger in which they were in. They were right there, present with Jesus, and yet they didn't trust him to provide for them. 
Though they had seen him miraculously provide food twice for great crowds, they had no real understanding of who Jesus really is. They were anxious about bread, but Jesus was anxious about their understanding. The scene on the boat appears to be left unresolved, but what happens when they arrive at Bethsaida serves as a commentary on the previous verses. A blind man was brought to Jesus, and Jesus escorted him out of the town. He wanted to avoid giving a sign to the people of the village. This miracle is unique in that it happens in stages. All the other miracles are instantaneous, but not this one. He put mud and spittle on the man's eyes and laid his hands on him. And then Jesus asked the man, do you see anything? Now, this question wasn't for his own benefit. Jesus knew that he had only partially healed the man. He asked this question because he wanted his disciples to learn something from this encounter. The man answered Jesus saying, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Now, this, by the way, is not a prophetic vision in need of interpretation. He, he didn't witness the ints of the Lord of the Rings. He knew he was seeing people walking around, but they were blurry, so much so that he couldn't really distinguish them from trees other than the fact that they were walking around. And so he concluded that they must be people. Now his answer is simply revealing that he had received a partial healing. Having heard his response, the disciples must have been scratching their heads, a, a partial healing. That had never happened before. Was, was Jesus losing his powers? Uh, perhaps that's why Jesus refused to perform a sign amongst the Pharisees. Now, of course, we don't know what they were thinking, but Jesus gave them the opportunity to ponder why the man's eyesight wasn't restored instantly. And then Jesus restored the man's vision, allowing him to see clearly. So what's going on here? What point is Jesus making by doing the miracle progressively? Well, first of all, it's important to notice that the focus is not on the man's blindness. Mark, through his carefully crafted narrative, only referred to the man's blindness twice. But there are eight different Greek words used for nine instances of seeing. The focus is on sight. And the number of occurrences corresponds to the number of questions that Jesus asked the disciples on the boat. Questions related to sight and understanding. Do you not understand having eyes? Do you not see? The purpose of this progressive miracle is to show how spiritual eyesight is given. See, the Pharisees were completely blind. The disciples were mostly blind, but Jesus was still being revealed to them. Their understanding would progress. Though they do not yet understand, 
Peter is about to make an incredible profession of faith. In the next chapter, they will see something amazing, but they'll misunderstand it. But in the end, they will see clearly when they witness the resurrection of Jesus. For the heart of our passage reveals that though the disciples had eyes, they could not see. Though they had ears, they did not yet hear. The progressive healing of the blind man shows that God is able to make those parts work. But it doesn't necessarily happen all at once. It also reveals that the ability to see, both physically and spiritually, is a gift of God, not a work of human ability. And this teaching didn't originate with Jesus. In our Old Testament reading, Moses pointed out to the people of Israel that the Lord had not given them a heart to understand, or eyes to see, or ears to hear, even though they had witnessed what the Lord did to lead them out of Egypt. You know, they had seen incredible signs, but the Lord would still need to open the eyes of their heart to give them real understanding. And that's how faith works today. The Apostle Paul shared his prayer request for the Ephesians, which was that the Father of glory may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. And Paul's prayer was that God would open the eyes of the hearts of the Ephesians so that they would see spiritually. Opening the eyes of your heart is a work of God. It doesn't happen by trying hard, reading your Bible more, doing more good deeds, going to church enough. You can do all those things and remain spiritually blind, like the Pharisees. We need the eyes of our hearts opened to see spiritually. And since that is a work of God, we should pray for it. And God is pleased to give good gifts to his children. Faith is a gift from God. The other thing to note is that the opening of the eyes of our heart is progressive. It's not a one and done deal, as if the moment you confess faith in Christ, you're done growing. We are meant to continually grow in our faith and understanding of spiritual things. And we won't see perfectly clearly until we are glorified. In the meantime, we are meant to grow. We are to submit ourselves to the ordinary means of grace, the word preached, prayer, the sacraments. And slowly but surely, our eyes will be opened and our understanding will increase. This morning, you might feel as if the level of your spiritual eyes is that of the Pharisees. If that's you, don't despair, for you are here. You are listening to the word preached. You are more like the disciples in the boat with Jesus than the Pharisees who stood in opposition to him. There's hope for you to see and understand things that currently puzzle you. Continue to come, read God's word, and find someone to disciple you. 
That's what our Sunday school classes are for, discipleship. We have great Sunday school teachers to help you grow. The same exhortation is for those of you who are new in your faith, for, for those who feel like their spiritual eyesight can hardly distinguish between people and trees. Watch out for the corrupting influence of those who oppose God and trust these words of Scripture which Paul wrote to the Philippians. I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God is not done with you yet. He will finish what he has started. Trust him. And for those of you who feel like your eyes are fully open and you see clearly, watch out for pride. No one has fully arrived. No one outgrows the need to study scripture. Our spiritual eyesight is progressive. And though the end is sure, you know, God will carry out the good work he began in us to completion. In the meantime, we are a work in progress. Be vigilant, watch out, but do not fear. The Lord is with you. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to Witness, a ministry of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Jackson, Mississippi. 